Amen. So let me read the word from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read it? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was, brought, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in the previous passage, um, Paul was defending his ministry to the church at Corinth as being from God by, by pointing to the abundant grace that they experienced um, through his ministry when he was there for the first time he came and, and, and built up the church of Corinth. He discipled them for a year and a half. And so he was saying that, uh, his, that what they experienced then, the glory of Christ that came through the ministry should have, have defended or they should remember that and remind them of how God used Paul during that time. That was his defense to them. He claimed that his team brought the aroma of Christ. And then he asked, who is sufficient for these things? And so in the first verse of our passage for today, he answers it. Chapter 3, verse 5, he answers that question. Who is sufficient for these things? And it reads, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency not in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. It's not our good ideas. It's not our intellect. It's not our strategic planning and training. In fact, it has nothing to do with something good in us, but rather it comes from the one who lives within us. When I was serving in a denomination they would have strategy and training meetings on how to grow your church, how to get to a thousand, you know, books on how to witness and evangelism campaigns and the like. And I'm not saying God can't use those things, but if people rely on the method, they miss out on the power and wonder of the all-sufficiency of God. We make our plans and we ask God to be in them. And sometimes we say, we make our plans and God laughs. <laughs> when really his plan for us is to live in him and watch what he can do through us when we make ourselves available to him as we walk in the spirit. I love this quote from Pastor Vance Havner. I believe he was actually um, the, uh, the chaplain of, of the Senate. 
He wrote that the Lord had strength and I had weakness, so we teamed up and the combination's unbeatable. That's confidence in the Lord rather than, than self-sufficiency. The accounts of the Old Testament illustrate this over and over again. If you're looking for it, you just see it everywhere. When Moses was called by God, what did he do? He complained that he couldn't speak. Lord, you know the mouth, I, my mouth, I can't talk. And, and of course, God asks him, who made man's mouth? Come on, Moses. God reminded him that he made his mouth. And he promised to be with his mouth and to teach him what to say. When God called Gideon, Gideon said, but, but, it was the angel of the Lord, and he said, but Lord, um, I'm the, um, our clan is the weakest clan in Israel, and I'm the weakest in our clan. I'm nobody. God responded in the next verse, I will be with you. And that's all we need to hear, amen? God is the all-sufficient one. Isaiah saw the Lord and responded by declaring that his mouth was unclean. But the Lord had the angel take the coal from the altar and cleanse his lips, as we just sang about. Jeremiah had the same complaint as Moses. Did you know that? He said, but I can't speak. And then he added to it and said, but I'm too young. God told him he would go where he was sent and he would speak what he was to say. In other words, you don't have a choice in the matter, Jeremiah. I am going to use you. And as we saw recently, Jehoshaphat feared that great horde that had come against Judah. And he says that, I know that we are powerless, but he did the right thing. He looked to the Lord to be all that he needed. We need to come to a place where we recognize our insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency. Oswald Chambers wrote, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced their dependence on their natural ability and resources. One of the great misconceptions among Christians is we have this idea that from a certain hour of the day, we're going to serve the Lord, or a certain day of the week, we're going to serve the Lord. And what are we doing with the rest of our time? What we don't realize is that we can be serving God when we rise in the morning, when we make our meals, when we go to work, even when we go on vacation. Hallelujah. <laughs> and when we read our devotions, anything we do can be done to the Lord. Paul tells us whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. When walking in the Spirit is our way of life, then we serve and glorify God without even realizing it. Even though we're unaware of it, we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of our Lord wherever we go, whatever we're doing. Kind word here, a helping hand there, a menial task done as unto the Lord. Everything we do can be done to him and in him with his life manifest in the fruits of the spirit that flow from our lives. 
That doesn't mean the flesh isn't going to make its demands. But when we walk in the spirit, we die daily to our fleshly nature. We crucify it over and over again, and we walk in the light. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We pray as we go, continually looking to Emmanuel, God with us. And that's not a drudgery. It's a joy, inexpressible and full of glory. What a lie Satan has perpetrated on mankind to think a godly life is pharisaical and boring, rule-keeping and bondage. It's joy and peace and full of adventure and wonder. Certainly, it has difficult moments, as all lives do, times when we're tested, but that's part of the training to bring us to even greater joy and wonder. And who is sufficient for these things? Our sufficiency is from God. We can't stay in the spirit on our own power. We can't have the right words, enough courage or willpower on our own. It's the life of Christ in us. He is the life-giving spirit. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He's the one who raises the dead, opening our eyes each morning and putting a song in our hearts. Verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. While Paul's defending his role as an apostle, he's clearly giving all the glory for his ministry to God, the source of the goodness in his life. God made him and his team, and I believe we could say anyone is in Christ, to be ministers of the new covenant. He and he alone is our sufficiency. Paul declares later in this letter that it's precisely because he is weak that the power of God can be expressed through him. God gives us the words to speak. He helps us understand the scriptures. He leads us to the right people, coordinates our encounters. You're not in this church by accident this morning. I'm not in this role doing my own thing because of my own willpower or because I wanted to be here. God is sovereignly directing all things to draw us to himself, and he gets all the glory. I think part of the wonder of heaven, and, and this is just my, uh, I guess, imagination, is that we'll be sitting around watching what happened in our life going, wow, I didn't know God intervened in that. Whoa, man, I've been the angels busy on that time. Wow, did you see how God saved me from going that wrong direction? I think we'll be looking back and seeing all the times God intervened and just our mind blown. Because right now we don't see it. You know, as we were singing, there are angels all around. I said, Lord, would you open my eyes? And I, he didn't, but there are. They are all around. And they're intervening on our behalf because the book of Hebrews tells us that they're sent to be ministers to those who are heirs of salvation. And I think we're all, I hope all here are an heir of salvation. And so there are angels ministering to you, keeping you, directing you, helping, keeping you from harm. Elders are ministers of the new covenant as we all can be. This is a covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus on the cross. 
Covenants throughout scripture were always sealed by blood, showing the seriousness of the agreement. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us the new covenant was sealed with better blood than the blood of bulls and goats. It was sealed with the precious blood of Christ. And this covenant is not conditional upon our obedience as the one Moses received on Sinai. It's based on the obedience of Christ on our behalf. We simply choose to accept what he's done for us, which will result in a broken heart. And the psalmist tells us a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. It's, it's like that passage that um, Brother Kip said earlier. You know that I see it as like the, the love and the mercy of God pushes on our hearts and, and for some reason we say, Ah, maybe I need to look at this. And we lift that veil that the enemy has used to blind us all our life. And the light of the glory of Christ just shines in and we see, suddenly see and realize he loves me. He loves me. And he gave his life for me. And I need to give my life to him. That's the only appropriate response to all that love is to give our lives back to him. You know, as Paul traveled around, there was this group of Jews who claimed to be Christians who followed Paul everywhere that he started a church, and they'd try to convince new believers that salvation was based on what Jesus did and their obedience to the laws of Moses. And Paul's teaching us here that the new covenant is all that is needed, that Jesus fulfilled the law, the old covenant is passed away. Jesus has given us a brand new covenant. The old is gone and the new has come because he did it for us. The old all just pointed to him. Elders are ministers of that new covenant, meaning that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they share it and they help others understand it and the implications of it. They explain how the Spirit works in our lives, applying God's word to sanctify our thoughts and our speech and our behavior. We don't teach rules and formulas, which is here is referred to as the letter. The Greek word for new in this case, the new covenant, is, is not a new in the sense of different. I'm sorry, not in the sense of time, but in the sense of being different. In other words, it's not just another new one. There was the old one, now there's a new one. No, it's the sense of this is totally different. This is a new thing. God has done a new thing. He's fulfilled the old and we're stepping into a whole new thing. That's because the letter kills. Just knowing the do's and don'ts is trusting in self. And you can never be good enough for God. That's the misguided idea of the Judaizers and of all religions. It relies on us being too prideful to see how far short we fall from the glory of God. We think, well, if we could just do this or we could just do that, it would, it would please God. And that's pride talking. And pride will resist grace that declares it's all done for us. God is holy. We can only please God by being in Jesus who died for our sins that we might be credited with his righteousness. 
then we can receive the Spirit who gives us life. It's his breath in us, following his lead, letting him express his life to others through us, introducing us, introducing others to that wonderful new covenant. It's important to understand that, that faith has always been the way of salvation, not works. No one was ever saved by works. Before Jesus came, it was faith that God would provide a way. The sacrifices prescribed in the law all looked forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The prophets told of this day when the new covenant would come, and when it did, it would not only be the answer to the Jewish dilemma of trying to keep all those laws, but it would also be proclaimed to the whole world. The new covenant in Jesus' blood is the only hope for Jew and Gentile, the only hope for the world. Have you ever seen the, uh, something people have it as a sticker on their car or on a shirt, Jesus, and the middle S is the Superman symbol? Because he is the only superhero that really saved the world. Amen. The new covenant is our only hope. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the third cup of the Passover Seder meal and he proclaimed, proclaimed that that predicted time had come. He said, this, is, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Ezekiel and Jeremiah predicted hundreds of years before, Jesus was saying it's coming to pass right now, right before your very eyes. The new covenant is about to be inaugurated. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Those who lived before Christ could find salvation and the joy of forgiveness just like we do after Christ. They repented of their sins. They respond to the grace of God by looking to God to provide atonement for their sins. The only difference is that we know how that means of atonement was obtained. Verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The ministry of death that Paul's referring to is the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, that Moses received on Sinai written by the finger of God in the stone. It came with such glory that the mountain shook the whole time. The, the people of Israel were scared. Moses said, you know, let's come up and meet God. And they said, no, no, you go. We're staying here. It's too scary. Because the top of the mountain was smoking and lightning striking it. When Moses came down from the mountain, the glory of the Lord shone on his face. And the people had him put a veil over it because it was so hard to look at him. That's amazingly glorious. If you saw that, you would never, never forget it. And yet Paul calls it the ministry of death. As he said, the letter kills. The law condemns us. It is meant to show us how far short we fall from the glory of God. Um, Ray Comfort, a, a pastor, a street evangelist, uses the Ten Commandments to witness to people because people will never know how much they need a savior until they realize how sinful they are. I should say 
We are. We all are. He asked the person if they have ever taken something that was not theirs. And they said, well, you know, I mean, I took some paper clips from the office. Okay, that means you're a thief, right? They say, well, yeah, I, I guess it does. They usually, we usually have. Almost everybody's taken something that wasn't theirs. Then he asked if they've ever lusted after a person. And who hasn't? That means they're an adulterer. Then he asked them if they ever lied. And they said, well, a little white lie, but I guess. And then he says, well, that means you're a liar. The letter condemns us. Why would God let us into heaven if we're lying, thieving adulterers, he asks. Reality check. Then he shares the gospel, and in the process, he becomes a minister of the new covenant. Apostle Paul puts it another way. He says he wanted to keep the law, but the law prompted his mind to do what he knew he was not supposed to do. He says that the law says not to covet, and he starts coveting things. The law that was meant to bring life results in death. It kills so that we might be born again by the new covenant that brings life. When the Spirit speaks through us to a needy soul, resulting in us sharing the love of Christ and eventually the wonder of the gracious gift of God in Christ Jesus, there's a glorious transformation from death to life. Paul says that's more glorious than what happened on Sinai. More glorious than that shaking mountain with the smoke ascending and the lightning striking it. Jesus said when that happens, when someone is transformed because they receive the light of the gospel, all of heaven rejoices. A soul steps out of the dark bondage of Satan and their own carnal desires and steps into the glorious light of the liberty of the sons of God. Their dead and empty spirit is filled with the Holy Spirit of God who begins to transform their lives. When we see someone take that step, we need to realize what we are witnessing. We cannot see it or hear it like they did at Sinai. Nevertheless, it's even more glorious. If we could see the joy in heaven, we'd realize that. The person's eternal future is changed as a result. They're going to influence others to enter the new covenant. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The law that was given by Moses condemns us all as sinners. It was glorious. Not only was it glorious in how it was delivered, but the rules were glorious in that they showed Israel how to live, how they were meant to live. And the more they tried to obey those laws, the better off they were physically. The rules were far ahead of the cultures around them. They taught sanitation, isolation of infectious disease, dietary laws for health. But most of all, they foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah and what he would do for us. But the reality of what it foreshadowed would be immeasurably greater as a person is to a photo. You know, in World War II uh, or in any war, Vietnam War, whenever, soldiers would carry a picture of their girlfriend or their wife. You know, 
they'd have it somewhere on there, the wallet or somewhere, they'd have that picture and they'd, and then when it got dark and hard, they'd just take a good look at that picture and know they had to fight on because they wanted to get back to their wife. Imagine them coming back home and, and there's their wife and they go, it's okay, honey, I got your picture. You want a hug? Well, I, I have your picture, it's okay. You see, the difference is the letter was showing the picture of Jesus to come. And he is the reality of that picture that we have in the Old Testament. How much more glorious is that? The law that was given to Moses condemns us all as sinners. The more they tried to obey him, the better off they were. The rules were far ahead of those cultures around him. But the reality of what it for the law foreshadowed would be immeasurably greater as a person is to a photo. The glory of the one far exceeds the other. And that's true in life as well. Someone who communicates the letter of the law is passing along information. But the one who speaks by the Spirit, the words of life, brings the glory of God. One impresses the mind. The other touches our souls. Verse 10, indeed in this case what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. You know, I often meet people who can't grasp this concept. They look to the letter for life, even the New Testament. They say, well, it tells me to do this. It tells me to do that. They're looking for a set of rules within the New Testament to make them right with God. Yes, uh, it, the word is glorious, its rules are glorious, but now the presence of the Holy Spirit and the life he brings passes that rule-keeping to such a degree that the first has no glory at all, he says. Its time has passed. That doesn't mean we shouldn't obey or study the, the moral laws of the Old Testament and the pictures presented to us in the Old Testament. There are eternal truths there insightful revelations of who God is and of our condition. We see our own weaknesses in it, and we learn lessons from those who've gone before and failed. But then we're restored, and they continued in their faith. It was the source of much of the teaching of the apostles. We were just talking about that in the Sunday school this morning, that whenever you're reading in the book of Acts, they declared to them Christ from the scriptures. What they're saying is, they preached Christ out of the Old Testament. They didn't have the Bible yet in the book of Acts, the New Testament in the book of Acts. All they had was the Old Testament. They were preaching Christ from the Old Testament in the light of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. They heard Jesus explain how it was all fulfilled in him. The glory it has now is mostly because of how it was fulfilled in Jesus. In our last verse, verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul's repeating this theme over and over because he wants us to live by the Spirit instead of the letter. The Jews who found Jesus as their Messiah had a hard time letting go of ritual obedience to the laws. We kind of see that in the book of Acts. And the, they had a hard time letting go of the laws of Moses and the traditions of Judaism. They have a hard time today. You know, our, um, 
uh, we had a, a Messianic Jew here came to Christ and, and we discipled him and he went back to Israel. And after two years, I got to talk to him on the phone and he said, God finally set me free from a religious spirit. And I thought, hallelujah, because he understood he loved Jesus and yet he was trying to work in all those laws he grew up with along with Jesus. I'm sure deliverance came through his study of passages like the one we're reading as the Spirit illuminated the truth of it. And Christians today have a similar battle. We like formulas and routines that make us feel as if we're pleasing God and being spiritual people. If you can go without prayer and never hear the Spirit's directions, if songs of praise don't rise up in your heart, you're probably living the letter rather than the spirit. And Jesus tells us to ask our good father for the Holy Spirit and he will gladly give him to us. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China wrote, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then he uses them. Quiet enough and little enough. What a great revelation from the Holy Spirit and his word. Notice he said, God trains somebody to be quiet and little. I think he's trying to train us all in the same way. It, it's just that our pride gets in the way and we refuse to be still and know that he is God and that we are not. We think our good ideas will bear eternal fruit for the kingdom of God only to find up in the end they were vanity. God's training is often down a path of brokenness and humbling situations to open our eyes to our true condition so that we learn to become totally dependent on the one who is all sufficient. If you think your weakness disqualifies you from being able to serve in some capacity, remember that weakness is an opportunity for God's strength. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is looking for insufficient people so that he can be all sufficient through them. May the Lord help us be still enough to silence our own egos and sit before his word and let it speak to our hearts and then humbly go in faith and let him lead us throughout each day and see his life bringing glory to God through us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song and then I'll bring the benediction.